Let us now turn to God's Word, the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, the 22nd chapter. Genesis chapter 22. text that I dearly love from my own youth, and a text that I love to preach. A text that you might think initially is unusual for a Good Friday service, but then again, I think we will all see how appropriate it is. Will you bow with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, In this gathered congregation this morning, there are many sorrows and there are many griefs. But never was there such sorrow and such grief as was known by the man of sorrows and acquainted with grief who took our sins upon himself, though he was holy and undefiled and separate from sinners. May we therefore learn to cast our care upon the Lord, knowing that he cares for us, And may we see that care in his sacrifice for our sins, even in this first book of the Bible, in Genesis 22. And we ask that the blessed Holy Spirit, in these quiet moments of reflection upon the Word of God, will work deeply in every believer's heart that we may be made more holy that our faith may be stronger, that our assurance will grow, and that lost people who may be here today who do not know Christ would come to know the Savior. We ask humbly these things in the name of Jesus our Lord, turning now to the Word of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Please take your copy of God's Word and stand. We will read the first 14 verses of Genesis 22. This is the Word of God. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here am I. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, And offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, and he said, Here am I, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. 
When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built there the altar and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on the top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. The word of the Lord, please be seated. People of God, if ever a text demonstrates that the deeds of man are not sufficient for our salvation, this one does. And this text in Genesis 22 points us to the altogether sufficient atonement of Jesus Christ our Lord, that only God can provide the sacrifice for our sins. Only Christ provided by the Father, can purchase us and redeem us from our awful guilt. And we see here God's mysterious providence and how he is working for your good despite appearances. And so we come to this text and we see, first of all, God's mysterious command. It's in these first verses. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here am I. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Every time that God had thus far spoken to Abraham, it was with a voice of blessing. God had called him out of Ur of the Chaldees. The covenant God had condescended to make his oath-bound promise to Abraham, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. And he even changed his name, Father of a great multitude, Abraham. I will establish my covenant between me and your seed to be a God unto you and to your seed after you all of these words of blessings, he would expect now when he heard the voice of the Lord that it would be a voice of blessing, don't you think? But then in verse 2, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. What? Sacrifice my own son? Blessing? God seemed to be thundering down the curse of death on his own beloved son. The heathen sacrificed their children, not followers of Jehovah. They sacrificed their children to false gods, but this comes from the Lord, the Holy One. And he is called to offer as a burnt offering with all of the reverence called for in the offering of sacrifice in worship to God. And what of the promise? 
In Isaac shall thy seed be called. And so we see here, as we move in the text, secondly, an apparent contradiction. That his son would die, this was a horrible thing. That he would die a violent death, that was even sharper and harder to bear. But a burnt offering to the Lord? That meant cutting up the sacrifice and consuming it on the altar? Abraham is called to be his own son's executioner and to offer him as a burnt offering to the Lord, as a sweet savor unto the Lord? Doesn't Micah later say, Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? How could this be, this God who always had come to him with blessing? How could this be? God promised this son would be an heir, and that through him there would be blessing to the entire world. How is that going to come about? Abraham once thought his servant Eliezer might be the one that would be his heir. No, God said, you will have a son. Well, perhaps it will be Ishmael. No, Sarah, old Sarah, whose womb was as good as dead, will conceive and she will have a son. And long after childbearing years, God kept his word in Isaac shall thy seed be called. He could point to Isaac. He could say, do you see my boy there? My son there is living proof that God keeps his word, that he's a miracle-working God, that who could have thought that God would keep his word to us when both of us were as good as dead, biologically speaking, we couldn't have children. God did this. God kept his word. And here is the apparent contradiction. Do you ever feel that? Do you ever feel that God promises and his character promises his love for you and yet that seems so inconsistent with the way things are in your life and in your circumstances? Let's heighten the tension. John Calvin put it this way, Isaac was the mirror of eternal life and the pledge of all good things. Isaac was not a son of the common order, but one in whose person the mediator was promised. And what Calvin is saying is simply this. If there's no Isaac, there will be no Christ. If there is no Christ, there will be no salvation. And then the world, you and I, are lost. Calvin says, in the person of this son, the whole salvation of the world seemed to be extinguished and to perish. God promised in Isaac your seed will be called. God promised that he would bless the world, that he would bring the Messiah through him. And now he says, take your son to this mount that I will show you and sacrifice him there. Take the son of promise, sacrifice him. Have you sometimes felt, I ask you, there was a contradiction between your circumstances and God's promises, or between your circumstances and his goodness. In such circumstances, what do you do? Well, Abraham tells us, trust God even when the circumstances seem 
to contradict the goodness of God. Leave the event and leave its outcome in the sovereign hands of the omnipotent God. Never doubt His Word. Never doubt His character. God's Word is still God's Word in hard times when we cannot see. Again, Calvin We act unjustly towards God when we hope for nothing from Him but what our senses can perceive. And so we pay Him the highest honor when in the affairs of complexity, we nevertheless entirely acquiesce in His providence. What we are learning from this text is that we are not to judge the Lord or our circumstances or what is happening in the world or what is happening in our lives, we are not to judge by feeble sense through our own finitude, much less the fact that we are fallen sinners. God is the God of providence. God moves in a mysterious way His wonders to perform. He plants His footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm, which is based on Psalm seventy-seven, nineteen: Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footsteps were unseen. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor? Therefore, judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. Which leads us to see thirdly, faith in God's promise. God did not require the sacrifice at once. Abraham had three long days in which to contemplate this, muse upon this commandment of the Lord, turn these things over in his mind and in his heart, and on the third day he sees ahead of him the place of sacrifice, Mount Moriah. Verses 3 and 4, So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and rose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Abraham then places the wood of the altar upon the back of his son, his young, strong son, Isaac. He takes the knife in one hand, the clay pot of fire in the other, and together they make their way up Moriah's Mount to the place of sacrifice. But he said, before leaving those servants who were with him, we will go over there and worship and come again to you. He believes God. He doesn't know how, but he believes God. And then in verse 6, Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife, so they went both of them together. Now one day, an only son of the heavenly father would carry his wood for the altar across 
on his own back to the place of sacrifice, Isaac's greater son. But I ask you, are there more moving words in all of Scripture than those recorded in verse 7? And Isaac said to his father, so you see they've arrived at the place of sacrifice. The sacrifice is to be made. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father? And he said, here am I, my son. He said, behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Old Matthew Henry says, my father would strike more deeply into his breast than the knife would in Isaac's. But see again Abraham's faith in God. In verse 8, Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. Literally in the Hebrew text, God sees before him the lamb for the sacrifice. And indeed he does. From before the foundations of the world, he has seen before him the lamb for the sacrifice. And then in verse 9, when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. His own son now is laid on top of the wood so that he might sacrifice him to the Lord. In the 11th chapter of the book of Hebrews, we are told that Abraham believed that God would show himself faithful to his word. He even believed that God could raise the dead. He did not understand. He did not know why. But he knows that God is a promise-keeping God. It also seems that Isaac believed the promise. There's no evidence of a struggle here. With both Abraham and Isaac... May we not see the love of the Father and the Son in agreement in the atonement? What about us? What does this mean for us? One of the old divines says, evidence of the fear of God is trusting Him with what is dearest to us. Oh, how I need that. Evidence of the fear of God is trusting Him with what is dearest to us. And this son was dearest to Abraham. And so in verse 10, Abraham reached out his hand and he took the knife to slay his son. The unthinkable is on the verge of happening. And we move into the fourth thing we see, God's surprising provision. Abraham then raised his knife, undoubtedly gleaming in the Palestinian sun, and was about to plunge it into his own son's breast when the angel of the Lord intervened. In verses 11 and 12, But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, Here am I. And he said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. The angel of the Lord intervenes. 
And then we read on in verses 13 and 14, And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Isaac was no longer upon the altar of sacrifice. The Lord supplied the sacrifice. Isaac is free because a substitute was provided. Now, you know from your reading of Scripture that often mountains are places of revelation, such as Mount Sinai, for example, such as where the Beatitudes were preached by our Savior. What does God reveal here on this mount? There are two fundamental principles that God reveals that will be unfolded as the Bible goes on and redemptive history is developed. The first is the necessity of sacrifice. Sin is a moral issue. Power alone is inadequate to pardon sin. I say it reverently, but God could not consistently with his nature simply have said, I pardon you. There must be sacrifice. Sacrifice, suffering, obedience are required. Sacrifice, bloody sacrifice is necessary for the restoration of the broken relationship between God and man. The first thing we learn from this text is the necessity of sacrifice. The second thing we learn in conjunction with it in this passage, when the angel of Jehovah points to the sacrifice in the thicket, Christ, the true sacrifice, intervened. A second related principle is the substitution of one appointed life for another is acceptable to God. Sacrifice and substitution. Sacrifice and substitution. Blood atonement. Ultimately, the sacrifice is Christ Himself. The substitute for sinners is Christ Himself, the holy, sinless Son of God. And oh, how it breaks my heart and actually infuriates me from within to know that churches that once preached sacrifice and substitution, now many of them do not. On this Good Friday, do you see the necessity of a sacrifice in your place? In your place, a substitute? In verse 8, Abram had said that God would provide the lamb for the burnt offering. Now God provides the sacrifice instead of his son who suffered and was sacrificed for us. The Israelites later when they read this passage would have thought of the Passover. They would have thought a lamb without blemish, sacrifice, blood was put on the doorposts and the lintel of the house and The night the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, but he passed over the houses under the value of the blood, a lamb instead of Israel. And later, in tabernacle and in the temple, 
for a burnt offering God required, Numbers 28, two male lambs a year old without blemish daily as a regular offering. One lamb you shall offer in the morning and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. And then this place. This place, this Mount Moriah, is mentioned again in the Bible in 2 Chronicles chapter 3. When David sinned in numbering the people, probably a military census, the angel of the Lord caused destruction in Jerusalem. And David lifted up his eyes and he saw the angel of the Lord stand between heaven and earth, having a sword drawn in his hand, stretched over Jerusalem. And it was upon that place that David built an altar the threshing floor of Ornan, and there later the temple was built and sacrifices were offered, sacrifices pointing to the sinless substitute for sinners, Jesus Christ our Lord. And this place, Mount Moriah, is later in the Bible called Mount Zion, the place where the temple was built. And as one Old Testament scholar puts it, the site at which Abraham held a knife over his own son was the place where the destroying angel held a sword above Jerusalem. It was there that through the centuries, hundreds of thousands of animals would die beneath the blade as sacrifices until ultimately the blade of divine justice would find its mark in God's own son. And near that mount, Mount Moriah, Near the Temple Mount, near that mount was another, another mount, and it was called Golgotha, the place of a skull. And there one day an only son, the beloved of the father, carried the wood for his altar across up that hill. And there God took the knife of vengeance against sin and plunged it into his own son's heart as he bore our iniquities. It pleased the Lord to crush him, putting him to grief, says Isaiah. What Abraham was not in the end required to do, God did. The Trinity planned this day in eternity past that an infinitely valuable sacrifice would be sacrificed as a substitute for needy sinners like us. In light of these things, O people of God, on this Good Friday and in your lives, in, in light of these things, trust and do not doubt. Do you doubt that God will provide for your redemption? That work that He did, only He could have done. What could you have done? What could you have performed to redeem yourself from sin? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for my soul? But God did give His own Son. God provided the sacrifice. God provides. Do you doubt that he is with you in your mysterious suffering? He is with us in the dark. He is working redemptively in our pain. And indeed, verse 14, God provides is literally God sees. 
And Paul is thinking of this passage because the language, the language in Romans 8.32 is language that is taken from the Greek translation of this passage. The Apostle Paul is thinking of this passage when he says in Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Not all things that we might like, not all things that are easy for us, but all things that we need, that His glory and our ultimate good be accomplished. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan His work in vain. God is His own interpreter, and He will make it plain. Do you doubt God's Word? God always keeps His Word, as He did in this passage to Abraham. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 5, every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. Even in darkness, Abraham was sure that God would keep His Word, and we, His covenant people, may be sure of that as well. But most of all, are you ever tempted to doubt the love of God? Are you ever tempted to doubt the love of God for you because of your hard circumstances, because of things you can't understand, because of things that are beyond your perception? Are you ever tempted to doubt the love of God? Oh, then you need to turn to Genesis 22. The real question as we turn to Genesis 22 is not, how could a man, Abraham, love God so much that he would obey even to the point of a drawn knife over his own son until God intervened? Now that's a profound question perhaps, but that's not the real question. The real question is not, how could a man love God so much? The real question, in light of my sin, in light of my guilt, in light of my need, in light of my rebellion, the real question is, how could God love me so much? And every time I think of this passage, I remember a scene from the life of Martin Luther. Once Martin Luther read Genesis 22 and his family worship to his family. And Kitty, his wife, said, I don't believe it. A father would not do that to his son. And Luther responded, but Katie, he did. He spared not his own son, but gave him up for us all. Our Father, seal to our hearts the message of Genesis 22, and may we see the great ransom for our sins and what it cost, not Abraham, not us, but what it cost the Father in giving His own Son. Oh, what love, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable.
what love for us. Ill-deserving, hell-deserving sinners. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.